You're listening to the Redeeming History Podcast, Season 1, The End of the Age, brought to you by Rebel Alliance Media. This is the final episode of the end of the age before we reach the climactic conclusion of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. In the last two episodes, we learned about the long line of Roman governors and procurators that ruled over the area of Judea in the decades prior to the war. We saw that although the Jews had for a long time been given relative freedom to live and worship and govern how they deemed fit, around the time of Jesus, this began to change rapidly. At the same time that the Roman governors were becoming more and more antagonistic, there was a growing and influential faction of Jews who were bent on revolt and overthrowing their Roman overlords. Israel was a powder keg ready to explode. The Roman procurator Gesius Florus was bent on inciting the Jews to revolt, and though not all, many of them were happy to oblige. The citizens who were opposed to war with Rome saw their greatest ally, King Agrippa, be banished from the city by the revolutionaries and they realize that if it comes to war, they will not be spared from the violence. So they sent letters to both Florus and Agrippa, pleading with them to send an army to crush the rebellion. Florus, you remember, rejoiced at the news, but did not respond, and Agrippa, still desiring to save the city, sent 2,000 troops to try and quell the revolt. So, on one side, there were the revolutionaries, the zealots, and the Sicarii. They also recruited a great many of the temple priests. They took hold of the lower part of the city, which included the temple area. On the other side, there were those who favored peace with Rome. They were mostly the upper class of society, among them the chief priests. They were aided by the troops sent by Agrippa, and they took hold of the upper part of the city, which included the palace of Herod. The two sides fought for control over the other for seven days without either side gaining any significant advantage. Then, this happened. Quote, The next day was the festival of wood carrying, when everyone brought wood to keep the sacred altar fire burning continually. The rebels excluded their opponents from the ceremony, but admitted into the temple the Sicarii with their hidden daggers. A fierce attack was made on the royal troops who were overpowered and retreated from the upper city. The victors then set fire to the residence of the high priest, the palace of Agrippa, and the public archives where the bonds of creditors were registered. The chief priests and leaders now hid in sewers or fled with the royal troops to the upper palace of Herod and shut the gate." The next day, the rebels also attacked and overwhelmed the Antonia, the fortress that was built by Herod and attached to the temple complex in order to protect it. 
Next, they set their sights on Herod's palace, which was the last stronghold of the city leaders and of the royal troops of Agrippa. The palace was well fortified, and though the siege against it went on for days, there seemed to be another stalemate. Even though the rebels and zealots now had the clear advantage in the city, they were still lacking one thing, a leader. And for better or for worse, they were about to get one. This is episode seven of The End of the Age, The Brink of Destruction. Before I tell you about this new leader of the rebellious factions, we need to go back a few decades to understand where he comes from. In 6 BC, Herod Archelaus, son of Herod the Great, was disposed of as king of the Jews as he was an incompetent ruler. His territory was annexed and became the Roman province of Judea. The new governor of this province tried to establish many new taxes for Rome, but instead, all he got was a widespread rebellion. This rebellion was led by a man by the name of Judas the Galilean. When the governor and the priesthood proved unable to deal with this rebellion, the governor of the neighboring province of Syria intervened by enacting a census. This governor was Publius Sulpicius Quirinius, made famous by the gospel writer Luke in his account of Jesus' birth. Judas and those who followed him caused quite a stir. He declared that the taxation was little more than slavery and exhorted his followers to assert their independence from Rome. At the time, there were three main branches of Jewish thought and philosophy. They were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Josephus records that Judas was the originator of the, quote, fourth branch, the Zealots. Here is how Josephus describes Judas and his fourth branch. Quote, Judas the Galilean was the author of the fourth branch of Jewish philosophy. These men agree in all other things with the Pharisaic notions, but they have an inviolable attachment to liberty and say that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. They also do not value dying any kinds of death nor indeed do they heed the deaths of their relations and friends, nor can any such fear make them call any man Lord." Unquote. Josephus is not fond of these zealots. As we have already seen and will continue to see, he places the primary blame for the war and for the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple on their shoulders. Therefore, it's unsurprising that he doesn't have much good to say about them or their founder. Quote, All sorts of misfortunes sprang from these men, and the nation was infected by this doctrine to an incredible degree. One violent war came upon us after another, and we lost our friends, which used to alleviate our pains. There were also very great robberies and murder of our principal men. This was done in pretense, indeed for the public welfare, but in reality for the hopes of gain to themselves, whence arose seditions, and from them murders of men, which sometimes fell on their own people and sometimes on their enemies. 
Famine also came upon us, and reduced us to the last degree of despair, as did also the taking and demolishing of cities. Nay, the sedition at last increased so high that the very temple of God was burnt down by their enemy's fire. Such were the consequences of this, that the customs of our fathers were altered, and such a change was made as added a mighty weight toward bringing all to destruction." Unquote. Because one of the messianic expectations of the Jewish people was national independence, Judas was considered by many to be said Messiah. He wasn't the only one making that claim, though. Quote, it came to pass, while Thaddeus was procurator of Judea, that a certain charlatan, whose name was Theudas, persuaded a great part of the people to take their effects with them and follow him to the river Jordan. For he told them he was a prophet, and that he would, by his own command, divide the river and afford them an easy passage over it. Many were deluded by his words. However, Thaddeus did not permit them to make any advantage of his wild attempt but sent a troop of horsemen out against them. After falling upon them unexpectedly, they slew many of them and took many of them alive. They also took Theudas, cut off his head, and carried it to Jerusalem." Unquote. Josephus does not tell us what became of Judas, but the Gospel writer Luke records a fascinating conversation between members of the Jewish Sanhedrin that shed some light on his fate. In the early chapters of the book of Acts, Luke tells us of many of the persecutions of the apostles as they try to spread the gospel. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles are preaching and performing many signs and wonders and declaring Jesus to be the Messiah. And so, the high priest and the Sadducees have them arrested and thrown into prison. That night, however, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, opened the prison doors, and told them to go and preach to the people in the temple. When it was discovered the next morning that they were no longer in their cells and that no one had released them, the Jewish leaders were naturally perplexed. And then, lo and behold, they discovered that the men were, sure enough, standing in the temple preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Quote, then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, 
and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Acts 5:26 to 42. Gamaliel, having seen other messiahs come and go, declares that if this man Jesus is simply another man claiming to be the Messiah, he will suffer the same fate as Theudas and Judas. If, however, he really is of God, then there is nothing that he can do about it. Now, he likely wanted to simply keep his hands clean and let the Romans deal with the apostles, but little did he know he was, in a sort of roundabout way, declaring Jesus to be the true Messiah as it would become very clear that there really was nothing that they could do about the apostles and their preaching. And so this brings us back to our story. These zealots who trace their lineage back to Judas the Galilean are largely taking control of the city, but are a leaderless mob. And so in steps Menahem, son of Judas the Galilean. Now, Josephus is sometimes a little fuzzy on his lineages, and many think that Menahem is actually the grandson of Judas, but either way, a direct descendant of Judas was stepping up to finish what he started. Quote, Menahem took his followers to Masada, where he stripped the armory of Herod to equip his colleagues and other outlaws. Returning like a king to Jerusalem, he became leader of the rebellion and directed the siege of the palace in which the garrison soon sued for terms. The rebels granted safe passage to the royal troops who withdrew. Menahem's men then rushed into the palace, killed anyone left, and set fire to the garrison. The next day, Ananias, the high priest, and his brother Ezekias were discovered hiding near the canal in the palace grounds and were put to death. Menahem, inflated by his success, became an unbearable tyrant." Unquote. It was at this time that Eleazar, the son of Ananias, the high priest just killed by Menahem, himself on the side of the zealots, decided that it was pointless to gain liberty from Rome only to come under the rule of a despot like Menahem. So, the infighting continues. Quote, This party attacked Menahem in the temple where he had gone to worship dressed in royal robes. All who were caught were put to death, 
among them Menahem, who was dragged from a hiding place and publicly executed after all manner of torture." Unquote. Now, a handful of Menahem's followers were able to escape, and they make their way to Masada, including another Eleazar, who was a relative of Menahem, and they would be the Sicarii who would famously hold off the Roman armies until AD 73 inside the fortress of Masada. And when the Romans finally reached the top of the mountain fortress, they found everyone there to have committed a mass suicide. But for Jerusalem, it seems as though maybe after having experienced the atrocities of another messianic figure like Menahem, that some in the rebellious party would have learned their lesson. Instead, they simply traded one lunatic for another. Quote, The people hoped that Menahem's death would end the revolt, but Eleazar and his party pressed the siege so vigorously that Metilius, the commander of the Roman garrison, offered to exchange arms and property in exchange for their lives. This was agreed to, and Metilius marched his men down, but as soon as they laid down their arms, they were all brutally massacred, despite their shouts of the agreement and the oaths." Unquote. Metilius himself escaped with his life, but not before being forcibly converted to Judaism and being forcibly circumcised, which for a Roman was incredibly shameful. Yet again, when there seemed to be hope for a peaceable solution, the Jews just can't seem to shake the desire for liberty from the Romans, and this horrible act made war inevitable, as it both infuriated the Romans and gave the Jews undue hope of success. The next weeks and months would see battles and massacres wherever large numbers of Jews could be found in the empire. And it's at this time that we return to some of the characters we've been looking at over the past couple of episodes, Cestius, Roman governor of Syria, and King Agrippa. Cestius realizes that it's now or never if he's going to save the city from being entirely overthrown. He musters the army and is aided by Agrippa. They quickly take and capture many cities and outposts in Judea and proceed towards Jerusalem. Agrippa, still hoping to be able to reason with the Jews and end this with little or no bloodshed, sends two of his friends to offer amnesty in the name of Cestius if they would lay down their arms. The rebels, afraid that many people will accept the terms, attack these two emissaries, killing one and wounding the other. There is nothing left now for Agrippa and Cestius but to attack the city. With all of the infighting among the Jews, Cestius's army was quickly able to take the upper part of the city, and the rebels retreated to the inner city and temple. Josephus at this point says that if Cestius had pressed the attack here, then he could have taken the city and ended the war right then and there. Except Florus, remember him, still intent on prolonging the war as long as possible, bribed Cestius's camp prefect 
to convince him not to press the attack. And it worked. This gave the rebels enough time to regroup, and they were able to hold off the assault for six more days. It was then, when it looked as though the city was moments from falling, that Cestius inexplicably recalled his troops and withdrew. And not only that, in the retreat, huge numbers of Roman troops were killed, and if not for the bravery of a select band of Cestius's troops who stayed behind to defend a small outpost while their compatriots fled in the night, the entire force may have been slaughtered. All told, Josephus places the casualties of Cestius's army at 5,300 infantry and 480 cavalry, and maybe more importantly, in the retreat, they had to abandon many catapults and other engines of war which the Jews would take back to Jerusalem and will help them fight off the Romans in the subsequent battles to come. The Jews stop fighting each other just long enough to rebuild and reinforce the walls of Jerusalem, and officers are sent out to muster troops and fortify other cities, as we saw with Josephus, who was given command over Galilee. But after having seen the successes of the Jews thus far, Emperor Nero decides to send in the cavalry, both literally and figuratively, in the form of Vespasian. He comes, backed by his Roman legions, and over the next couple of years they march through Judea, conquering city after city just like they did in Yodfat against Josephus's forces. And once they finished the Galilean conquest, Josephus makes this comment, quote, Galilee was now entirely subdued, having provided the Romans substantial training for the coming Jerusalem campaign. In the last episodes, we will now get to the heart of the end of the age. Beginning in AD 68 with Vespasian and ending in AD 70 with his son Titus, we will see the final days of Jerusalem and the temple within it.